Greetings, 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 best and brightest. I am Jay Severin. I am the invasion of the giant pod pundit. This is episode 75, for those of you paying attention, and I know anyone listening is paying great attention. I am naming this episode 218 because that is the be-all and end-all, Excelsior. Invasion of the Giant Pod Pundit with Jay Seven. Look, this is a week during which, but for some uh, not feeling well, having a couple of medical issues to deal with, I really owed myself and you a couple of podcasts. I don't deny it, and for their absence, I apologize. I have told you I will not podcast for the sake of podcasting, but certainly this was a week where that was no defense. However, I did not go to sleep at night worrying that the best and brightest would not know what to make of what's going on, because I know, you know, exactly what's going on. What's going on is 218, as in 218 votes, as in a majority by one in the House of Representatives, as in Donald J. Trump 45th President of the United States, shall hereby be impeached. Those words will be spoken. They will be spoken. And the uh, quote-unquote black mark of impeachment, and I certainly regard it as such. I mean, as as a related sidebar, the one thing I believed deeply during the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton was that no matter what else, no matter what else, I would forever be able to call Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, the impeached president of the United States. And that has always given me, and that has always given me great joy. Now, I must consider the notion that a president I support will have the black mark of impeachment. And though I do not feel a great connection to him personally, if you know what I mean, 63 million people agree that this is the man they wish to head the United States of America. And the Democrats are using impeachment in an unholy, an unholy, an unforgivable, an anti-constitutional manner. And they will proceed because they have 218 votes, apparently. Back to the timing and what they will do with all that in just a moment Let's jump in for a second and consider a few matters related to the candidate debate of this week. 
I think the biggest excitement for me was as a technical matter, the broadcast I was watching, the audio was not syncing correctly with the video. So, I mean, right now, one of the one of the car insurance commercials has a very clever spot on right now about an actor um, who keeps screwing up and they say, oh, never mind, we'll just dub it. And in the end, it ends up looking like a Japanese uh, horror picture with the dinosaurs and all. It's just totally out of sync. And that's how, how I felt about this debate. Watching Biden, and I, I don't own this phrase, but watching Biden trying to finish a sentence, good God, watching Biden trying to finish a sentence is like watching a really fat man trying to cross an icy street on a windy day. We're transfixed, not so much with the substance, almost never the substance of what he has to say, but we are absolutely transfixed by his endeavor of journey across the patch of ice, just waiting for his fat ass to fall and crack it. I noticed, too, that Kamala Harris gets and sounds blacker and blacker the further behind she is in the polls. Is this a strategic decision? Of course it is. And by the way, is this the same woman who made her reputation putting a million men of color in jail in California? Now watch her try to make up for it. And as professionals, as now you are, also watch as the MSM does their very best to erase Kamala Harris's past. Erase the past for Kamala Harris. Um, I noticed that, and I'm a big, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big bug about this. Audiences have a profound effect on events, and I believe that in the case of events like a debate, especially a presidential debate, the presence of an audience and the motions that the performers go through to try and play the audience, to try to win approval with the audience, the way they act after they've been booed, the way they act after they've been applauded, all of this is a major factor in how debates play out, and it oughtn't be that way. It ought not be that way. I say, and I've been saying my adult life, kind of a curiosity as to when that started, but all my adult life I have said, get rid of the audiences. Get rid of the audiences and have only the candidates as factors in this. Huh? This audience in particular sat on its hands more than any other I have seen in maybe my lifetime. This audience less affected this debate than perhaps any audience featured uh, event I have ever witnessed. So a couple of people uh, wired me here and said, you know, Biden is out of his mind. I mean, that is a popular meme among our folk here. I haven't really seen that enough to start to 
really grab it yet. Um, you know, someone has said that the, the obvious that uh, Susan in Massachusetts says it's obvious that the beginnings of dementia uh, are are rampant here, and it's disgraceful that his family doesn't step in and rescue him and do something about it. I have to say about Bernie that I find myself laughing in a different way at him now, Bernie Sanders, than I used to. I find myself almost laughing with him. Now, 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 to be sure, he is a communist. And so I can never truly laugh with him uh, in a very earnest way. But I must say, the more I see of Bernie, the happier I am he is still in the race. And I love how Bernie Sanders has very cleverly, very cleverly turned that uh, phrase, I wrote the damn bill, into his calling card. I mean, very clever, very, very clever. Next time I direct Dickens, Bernie is my number one choice to be cast as Ebenezer Scrooge or Ralph Nickleby. Uh, I'm not worried whether Bernie will be available for a long-term Broadway run. I'm rather sure he will be available. When all of a sudden, out of the darkness of the nasty, negative, male, complaining campaigns and candidates burst Tulsi Gabbard the other night, I had to say to you on, uh, on Twitter, all of a sudden, who is this from the cast of Baywatch? Where did this come from all of a sudden? <clears throat> she, um, Tulsi, by the way, had zero impact. It was a wonder, and not a particularly good one, I think, that Tulsi was in that debate. Why should Tulsi Gabbard be in that debate? Now, <clears throat> that's different than whether I personally welcome her, because as an analyst, it gives me something to analyze. It is it is a shot in the arm when she's in the debate, but honestly, if we're speaking here about choosing the elector of uh, the electors of and the leader of the free world. What is Tulsi Gabbard doing in this campaign? And I'm sorry, if there's going to be a woman running for president, which is <clears throat> okay, kind of with me, just would you lose? The white double-knit pantsuit, please. I mean, that's sort of the equivalent of what 1980s used car lot salesman in uh, Lima, Ohio would be wearing. Lose the pantsuit, Tulse. Lose the pantsuit. I did like the early ugly spat between Kamala Harris and Tulsi. Uh, and my comment was, more! Smack her! Smack the bitch! But that was not to be. Tulsi was early recognized as a non-factor in this once they got out of the gates. And um, as we say about as we say about Kamala Harris, she was ready for the attack, and um, immediately after Tulsi attacked her, she bang came back with you know eight or ten sentences uh, that are supposed to sound spontaneous, and about which we in the business say. She rehearsed that spontaneous moment for the past five weeks. 
Another is that Mayor Pete, observations, Mayor Pete is getting awfully good at this. You know, he now leads in both Iowa and New Hampshire. It puts him on the top tier, puts him in the top tier, really kind of forever. We'll, we'll be dealing with Mayor Pete for a while. Biden, meanwhile, is so tight, I keep waiting for him to break apart with springs and wires and smoke coming out. He is not likable. He is so tight. I mean, not very many people remember anymore one of the very true geniuses the media business has spawned, other than, <clears throat> other than myself, and that would be Marshall McLuhan. And a very oversimplified version of that which he spent a brilliant career observing is that uh, television is a cool medium and that all other media are hot. And it's true. And I'm only going to scratch the surface here in giving uh, you, uh, offering uh, an example. In order to be good in the newspaper, I mean, to be fair, let me start with print, though it's dead. Let me start uh, with, with print. In order to be a good newspaper reporter, the words must jump off the page. You must tell an exciting story that will cause you to put down your coffee and your toast and turn to the <clears throat> continuation on page 17. In print, that is just absolutely something you must do or forget that medium. As to radio, I used to tell when I was a producer, when I was a host, I used to tell people, I know that you're on the radio and I know that it might be a bit daunting, but on the radio, more is less. Way more is good. One must punctuate and create levels of conversation and drama within the sentences of news or commentary that a radio reporter, a radio performer, must perform. See, that is, hear, Rush Limbaugh. In any case, the other medium here is television. Now, again, in, in print and in radio, you must be hot, hot, make it hot, make it melodrama. Radio is the best example. Make it hot. It cannot be too hot. When it comes across on the radio, it will just seem like good radio. And then once we got these people, and I say we because, you know, I trained a hundred or more members of Congress, the Senate, uh, the House, senators, presidential candidates, corporation people, how to do radio and then how to do TV. And once they got good at radio, they sucked at television because you must be hot on radio. I'm hot right now. Not really hot, just kind of hot. But when one does television, one must back off and be cool. Real cool. You know what that's from? It's from the greatest musical of all time. The greatest, most fantastic musical 
ever written for and performed on the stage. In any case, hot and cool. Many of the candidates are hot. Biden is hot. It's too hot to listen to, too hot to touch. Biden is hot, 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 but not in a good way. Pete Buttigieg is cool. And cool works on TV. Look, um, I think that Pete Buttigieg, who is a cross between Bill Clinton when he first came out and Barack Obama, hasn't really hit the major population yet. But that, to me, is one of the most interesting questions of this campaign. Will people vote for Pete Buttigieg despite the fact that he is a homosexual? Hmm? Will black voters in particular, who rule certain states and regions, example, South Carolina, we're looking at a, a circumstance right now in which Mayor Pete may well win Iowa and then New Hampshire a week later, which is a very, very big deal. And there will be celebration, and there will be firecrackers and skyrockets, and then everyone uh, will come to the, the uh, stark realization that the next primary is in South Carolina, where about two-thirds of the vote comes from African Americans. And as of today, African Americans ain't voting for Pete Buttigieg. Gay don't play as of today with African Americans in South Carolina. So what happens to Mayor Pete if he wins, does something exceptional, wins both Iowa and New Hampshire, and then gets smashed by Biden in South Carolina? What happens then? Well, you may wonder why Kamala Harris at the beginning of the debate was getting so much airtime. I did. You know why? Because she's a woman of color, and this is MSNBC's women's debate. MSNBC favoring a sure loser and giving her more airtime because of her gender and her color. Because of her gender and her color. You can go back, you could time it, you could look at it, watch the first half hour again or listen to it. This is something that networks can do now indiscriminately. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word because it's very discriminately. Have you noticed, I know I'm jumping back and forth, but these are from my notes of the debate. Did you notice how by far uh, Mayor Pete is the more polished, interesting speaker and debater than any of his older more experienced opponents? Someone mentioned in this, you know, again, Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg's gayness. This is the Herculean challenge of the campaign for him. He's been giving fine answers, but um, he needs African-American votes. And uh, South Carolina will be a real lesson, maybe his last. Cory Booker did very well. He slammed Biden, uh, but with humor. I thought that line that, you know, I, 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 uh, Mr. Biden, I heard you this week 
outlaw legalized marijuana. And I must tell you, I thought you were probably high when you said that. I thought that was the most clever lines I've ever, one of the most clever lines I've ever heard in an event like this. But look, the guy is smart. The guy's well-educated. The guy punches a lot of tickets. It's not over for Cory Booker, but I just don't see it for him in the number one spot. Everybody who might have been at one time the nominee will say, okay, okay, I'll take number two. I'll take number two and be number two for eight years and then run for president. I kind of like the next 16 years of my life being either vice president or president of the United States. Who wouldn't? Well, Biden behaved generally like a, a boner. And I think Biden tied himself in this debate. Uh, which is to say, no clear winner, no clear loser. Right now, you know, the debates have been subsumed by the polls and the expectations of their outcomes. Right now, we look at the debates, and, you know, we used to look at the debates together and say, wow, look at this little tiny tick or that little tiny tick, and will it matter? But we are now sophisticated enough, having been through a lot of this, to say, you know what? We're like 80 days away from Iowa. So let's not sweat the small stuff. We're going to know and we'll keep an eye on this. We'll still talk about it. We'll analyze it. We'll get it right. We'll have it first before everyone. But the revelations are going to be, I think, a little bit fewer and further between now than they were when we had open season, you know, during the summer, during last spring. We're really moving from the public performance realm, you know, of the debates into the voter performance realm of this. How well did they do? Well, you know, great. There'll be many criteria by which to judge it, but the only criteria that will count will be uh, the product of the voting booth. And now uh, just a few words about uh, impeachment. If you are a partner here, you have known for a long time that impeachment was very likely inevitable. You knew that impeachment was something that a large segment of the Democrat Party was demanding and that a large, older, more conservative, or I could say less, less Marxist uh, slab of the Democrat Party wanted to make sure they, they, they didn't lose because they put up someone who was too radical. So we've essentially had the AOC, the progressive bunch, against the kind of Biden bunch. What would come out of that? Well, again, we're, we're about to find out. You know, predictions won't be as important as reportage in just a minute or two. But as, as for impeachment, 218, 218 votes in the House of Representatives is impeachment. Is one more than the Democrats need to impeach Donald Trump. It's always been, do we have 218 or do we not? They do. Somewhere during the course, very, very early in these faux impeachment hearings, Pelosi was persuaded that the Democrats have at least 218 votes. 
To get more, they would have to cut into Republicans, which I think is uh, plausible, but unlikely, very unlikely. 218 votes in the House impeaches Donald Trump, no matter what he has done or hasn't done. If it's obstruction of justice, it's if it's obstruction of the Congress, if it's it, the articles of impeachment are just about to be handed now from the Intelligence Committee, about which I wrote and we spoke recently. They really pulled one here on the Republicans that I don't understand why we didn't fight it. They gave impeachment, not to the Judiciary Committee, but to the Intelligence Committee, which is one of our super secret committees in Congress for which special exemptions are made. And the Democrats were able to choreograph the entire set of hearings against Trump and now take that choreography without Republican challenges, without Republican witnesses, without knowing who the whistleblower is, without being able to present that as evidence, using the expansive tools of the Intelligence Committee, E.T. Schiff, composer, and turn it over to the Judiciary Committee. And now there will be four or more articles of impeachment. And sometime in the last several days, Pelosi either believed or was bludgeoned into the position such that we've got our 218 votes and that no matter what happens thereafter, we've got what we've always wanted. We have the scarlet letter to place on Donald Trump. We have the most shameful stigma that we can place on Donald Trump right here ready to hang about his neck, one that can never be removed. And one, as I said earlier, I have enjoyed since Bill Clinton, since the impeached Bill Clinton was impeached, that every time I mention his name, I say, you know, the formally impeached Bill Clinton. That ought to be in the first sentence of the first paragraph of Bill Clinton's overdue overdue obituary, but I don't know if it will be. It ought to be. First impeached president of the United States, Bill Clinton. In any case, they've got that now to hang around Trump's neck. No matter what you hear in the next few days, the last two weeks were window dressing. They were choreography. You know, don't you, that all of the testimony you may have heard was given over to the Democrats days before the witnesses appeared. Not one thing they said was a surprise to the Democrats. Everything was typed out, written out, checked, cleared by all the appropriate departments. The Democrats knew exactly what every witness was going to say. The Republicans did not. That's why they let, that's why they forced the Intel Committee to do this work, not the Judiciary Committee. Well, now in the Judiciary Committee, they will do whatever the others say they ought to do, and Pelosi is going to say, we ought to proceed, we must proceed with impeachment. It's an awful thing. We're very sad to do it. Well, I take no joy in doing this, Nancy will say, as she pees herself in private. So delighted is she 
at the very sensation of placing the scarlet letter around Donald Trump's neck, which is one of the great unfairnesses, perhaps the greatest in American history. You may not like Donald Trump, but the last thing in the world appropriate for him is impeachment. The last thing appropriate for Donald Trump is high crimes and misdemeanors. If you're using Emily Post's book of public behavior for the young adult, which I was handed as a freshman in college, by the way. We'll talk about that another time. If Emily Post is your guide, Donald Trump should probably be imprisoned. But if fairness and the trueness of the American market is measured, Donald Trump is perhaps no better, but certainly not worse than all of the people now shaping our culture. And the fact is, he gets things done, things you have never heard about. I heard the litany today. I heard the litany today of the things that Donald Trump has done. And it really, it made me, it made me want to both weep and explode with rage. This guy has gotten more done than the last 10 Republican presidents. And God's willing, he's only halfway through his tenure. But impeachment will happen. No matter what you hear, uh, someone asked me today, are the Democrats finished? Do we move right to the articles of impeachment? That's for them to decide. They left it uh, notoriously ambiguous. They don't want anyone to know because they want to keep people tuned in. So they're not going to announce that until they're ready to move. I'm pretty sure that they're finished and they want to move. One of the reasons for which is, and this is very important, and you won't hear this on, you know, in the mainstream media. The rules about a Senate trial are that every day uh, the Senate is in session, which by law would be six days a week, nine to five. Every United States senator must be present every day, no matter how long it takes to complete the impeachment trial in the Senate. Every United States senator must be in his or her seat, must be registered and present. This means, of course, that the front-running Democrat candidates for president won't be allowed to campaign. This means that Joe Biden, A.B. Klobuchar, et al., Bernie Sanders, they will not be able to campaign. They are, however, permitted, and you won't hear this in MSM, they are permitted at the beginning of this. Like, if they're not there, U.S. Marshals hunt them down and arrest them. Is this a great country or what? And then what happens is they are given a choice of uh, one person, anyone whom they may pick, as a surrogate for themselves. That surrogate represents the candidate and goes out and campaigns in the various states and the various venues. And one wonders, one, one ought to be fascinated. I am. So let's just say one is fascinated by the question, the puzzle. 
whom would each of these candidates choose? And I wish to cut right to the quick here and tell you the reason it fascinates this one is that I wonder who Bernie Sanders will choose. Hmm? And I think it's a done deal that in exchange for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, did I get that right? AOC's endorsement a few weeks ago. She got a number of things in return. Of course she did. And one of them is when Bernie Sanders appoints a counselor, a surrogate, to go out all across the country and all over television to represent him, perhaps for a couple of months that this could take, I think AOC got that, among other things, in exchange uh, for her fidelity in this deal a couple weeks ago. So watch that one to play out. The bottom line is the Republicans have time to burn because a Republican president is the incumbent. But the Democrats, now that they have lingered over impeachment and tortured the president and a lot of us with it. Now they want to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, because they see if this goes after Christmas, if Mitch McConnell slow walks the impeachment trial in the Senate, this baby could last until March. Easily, easily last until March. By which time, Joe Biden et al. would have missed the first, the next six primaries. And if you're a Democrat, that can't happen. Or, depending on the Democrat you are, it's just the greatest news ever. And that's what makes this so much fun. So impeachment will happen. And I, I, I'm going to offer you this, the following, only because I keep hearing it as recently as today on television there was a Democrat lawyer on television that was labeled as a legal and political analyst. I just, do you know these people? 20 years ago, I was one of the top three analysts in American television when it came to the Clinton impeachment and everything else we were doing, primetime every night, the whole deal. And Back then, you had to actually have done something. You actually had to have been a campaign consultant in a real campaign. You had to have actually, get this, you had to have actually directed the strategy of a campaign for the House or the Senate or a big city mayor or president. You needed to actually have done that in order to be titled up on the screen, you know, Republican strategist, Democrat strategist. These children that they have up there now are not only stupid, painfully, agonizingly stupid and ignorant, as I'm about to uh, illustrate, but they have no real campaign experience. I went this week watching the hearings, and when they cut back to the studio, other than the exception of two or three regulars, uh, on uh, 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 Fox and uh, MS Basile and um, CNN, with a few, very few examples. These were stupid children who had never so much as licked an envelope as a volunteer. 
in a campaign for dog catcher somewhere. Do we have any more dog catchers? I hope not. Uh, in, in any case, so I really lose patience with that. But insofar as impeachment and all the experts go, yes, yes, Donald Trump is going to be impeached. But no, no, uh, as wrongly explained today by some moronic child on CNN, when she said, now think of it this way, we are the jury, and Donald Trump goes to trial, and we are the jury. No, you're not. You are the grand jury. You decide whether or not in the House, the House acts as the grand jury. The grand jury determines whether there are 218 votes, i.e. one more than a tie vote, to indict, in this case, Donald Trump. The House is the grand jury that can do one of only two things. They can decide to indict, or they can decide to not indict. They are the grand jury. Once they've done that, They're over, finished, through. They have nothing left to do with the process. Then it goes to the United States Senate. They, they are the jury. And in that jury, two-thirds of the vote, that would be 60 out of 100 U.S. senators, would be enough to convict and recall from office Donald Trump. This is now being thought of as virtually impossible. Uh, At this moment, I agree. I think there could be a few embarrassing Republican defections just for the purposes of embarrassing the president and some woefully, tragically incoherent and incorrect notions that they're creating a wing of the Republican Party that post-Trump will help them reform their presidency and their election. Uh, uh, Most often noted in this group would be Mitt Romney. But it is regarded as impossible, and as of this moment it is, that Donald Trump would be convicted in the Senate, as I say, other than for a couple renegade votes. And the Senate trial will be different because we'll learn what happens, what the difference is, when one party is in charge and another party is in charge, even though the Republicans my whole life have disappointed me. I'm a conservative, not a Republican. And the Republican uh, wing of the conservative, the constitutionalist movement, has always disappointed most of, uh, of us conservatives because they're too damned polite. They always stop short of going the full measure of discipline. And yes, Revenge. What I want to see, it won't happen in the Senate, but after the Senate finds Donald Trump not guilty, not guilty, and Donald Trump resumes his affairs as President of the United States, I hope for the love of the sweet infant Jesus, I hope that Donald Trump, seeing that he's in his second term with no future vote to worry about, I hope that he decides to exact on his political opponents the most savage vengeance ever in American history, and I pray only that I can be somehow a part of that. 
Only history, only in history, only in retrospect, will any of us, well, most of us, appreciate the, will appreciate the perversion, the sheer perversion of what one American political party has done here. No one has ever been impeached. No one has ever been even censured for making a phone call, you know, where they said, hey, look, we've got this $400 million check sitting here. And by the way, how's this other thing we talked about going? Oh, gee, like that's not done every day by every president since George Washington. What kind of president wouldn't do that? Answer, not the kind you want, not the kind I want. But I just hope that there is a terrible march of vengeance against Trump's uh, worst, his worst critics in this, and I hope I can help. So for now, I hope this helps a little. I return to Twitter where I lurk almost always, hoping to catch you in the mood for conversation and maybe cheap laughs. Remember, the podcast is generally a compilation of of my thoughts and yours, which we post a couple of times a week um, here so that we can be in another medium other just other than just the wise guy medium of, uh, of Twitter, although I love it. I do love it so. As I love you and your attentions, until we meet here again presently, I am Jay Severin, Excelsior. <laughs>